Uh, how have you been? Hey, so have you been, my friend? I've been very well. Yeah, the channel's been uh, transitioning from the Thomas episodes, and now we're doing some speeches on campus. So it's, it's on a nice trajectory right now. That's good, man. But will you have, is it because Thomas started his own channel? Is that? So he kind of uh, cut you out a little bit? No, 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 no. I would never <laughs> imply. But uh, no, uh, it was just kind of the natural course of things. And so mm, I think uh, there's mm -hmm. going to be all kinds of content from uh, a lot of your mutuals. So we'll be, uh, that's good. That's we'll be good. doing some similar stuff. Yeah, man, that's good. Um, how how was the, uh, how'd the campus thing start? Um, what year are you in, if you don't mind me asking? I'm, I'm, I think a junior. I'm sort of losing track. But um, yeah. yeah, see, in America, so first year, I'm guessing then, or uh, well, I, or first? I was at, I don't like, know, my third, my third year about because I was at community college. Oh, yeah. And so I'm like transferring in. So that's yeah, the, in America, they have like, how does it go? The very first thing, what is it called? Sophomore? No, and no, no. Then, it's, uh, it's, um, Oh my goodness. Freshman. Freshman, then sophomore, then junior, then senior. That's right. Um, okay, I'm Canadian. They go by years, like first year, second year. Uh, we call it university like the British, right? We call it university. We don't, I mean, we have college, but college is like a vocational thing. Like uh, but yeah, yeah, university is like that's what we call it. Um but yeah, um, so I am here with my good friend is. Um, so we we I wanted to bring you on to talk about um, to have another music critic uh, show outside of style talks uh, because I wanted to talk about this concept of uh, called new age metal, and I wanted to talk to you about a number of albums that we quite enjoy in this genre, but also sort of the what I would say like the weird period in the like mid to, I would say early to mid nineties where you had like a bunch of like, you know, when metal in general went underground to an extent and you had a lot of these very creative bands along with sort of like the Florida death scene um, transitioning into experimentation and sort of innovating things that are basically commonplace nowadays, I mean, especially since the 2010s. Like I was there, listen, you're young. And I, I was there during, sure. I went to the summer slaughter tour with the gent one. Okay. Wow. I went there <laughs> when it was All like, right. uh, yeah, it was like, um, uh, animals as leaders periphery, which I really don't care for, but I care. Animals is a good band. Um, I think the opener was Dillinger. Um, but rings of Saturn, like I was there. Okay. I was during the gen thing. I, that was me. Okay. That was, that was us older, uh, well, mid, mid millennials. Um, but you know, but of course, you know, being at the tail end of the new metal thing as well. But before we get into that, just real quick introduction. I'm pretty sure most people listening to this know who you are, but <sighs> drop the link. What is your, what is the ethos of your channel? Um, besides just being uh, the young boy of Thomas 777, who will That's be on the show one day, hopefully, but we'll see. We'll work hopefully. out a deal. Work out a deal. Um, Ace Ace charges a fair bit for Thomas's appearance. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. He's got to bring him out of the retirement home in Chicago. He's got, you know, they got to go to Burger King first. And the, no, I'm kidding. I don't want to insult Thomas. 
Of course, of course. No. But Ace does have to give him. He's you know he's got to prepare him for a show. He's got to bring him to a Burger King, and it goes from there. So yeah, it's uh, you have yeah, a big it's job. Un <laughs> unconventional process, but yeah, that's how you bridge the Genets <laughs> and Zoomers together. You just gotta think outside the yeah. box. But uh, yeah, well, it's funny. My arc is kind of similar to yours. My Loud Sound Epicenter is the YouTube channel. It originally started as a blog when I was a freshman in high school. So oh, it was yeah. it was kind of a long way coming, and I didn't exactly know what it was going to materialize as. But when I like I I was introduced to Thomas through uh well I guess I found Thomas on uh, Scott Greer's podcast, highly respected. Oh, wow. And so it was the metal episode that caught my attention. And so in a way, it kind of wasn't purely political why I was even uh, seeking him out. But eventually it turned into a lot of the uh, political videos, like interview format. And then it just mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. uh, kind of just kept going from there. And so uh, I, uh, I have a sub stack that I kind of neglect, but I'll, I'll be trying to get back into that. Yeah, and, same, uh, same. Yeah, you know I how really I neglect it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, p yeah, a lot of people have watched your streams with Thomas. Um, so it, it, you're really good with the titles. I feel like the one, <laughs> the one I love is the field network one. That was a great one where Thomas oh, goes right. into the field network. Um, I hope, I hope Peter Thiel, listen, I know people that know Peter Thiel and I want Peter Thiel. Listen, listen, Peter, give me some money. Take that blonde chubby girl from your ad from the Right Stuff dating app and give her to me, and we'll be cool, okay? I will be your, I will be your largest soldier, Peter Thiel. Okay. Well, I assume just... that he was trying to corral you in. That was sort of intentional, you know that. I, I think so. I think he's sending me a message. He's sending you. I'm not a big fan of the blondes, but I I don't care. The blonde is good. Don't worry about it. They have fun. Um, she wants. She I believe in the ad. She said she wanted an alpha male. But, you know, us Italians were pretty much born. Um, well, I shouldn't say that we're mama's boys. I can't really say that. But, uh, you know, but maybe. Who knows? Well, well, Peter is sending me a message. I think he says, like, he's he's trying to say, Gio, I want you on board. I want to give you this trad woman, this chubby trad woman who will bear your Italian stallion children. And uh, that'll be amazing. So, anyways. <laughs> sorry, my hair is I just came out of a shower. Uh, Oh, I have to censor that now. God, I have to, because YouTube monetization, but uh, I have to hide the Norwooding. Um, that's why I wear the Fez, by the way, to hide the Norwooding. But um, there you go. That's better. So, <laughs> so Ace, uh, by the way, what is your haplogroup? I know people have speculated upon your ethnicity um, and why Thomas would hang out with such a Michling as yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Can I say Michelin on YouTube? I hope I can. But probably ahead. you're probably safe. Um, so I am uh I am half Hispanic or just about, and uh, half uh, Irish. I guess would be the uh, my father's side. So that is people have speculated. People thought it was Hoppa. You know all kinds of stuff. But <laughs> you know, that's, it's because I don't know what it is like Hispanics that look like uh, American Indians. It's a very I'm not sure the history there, but that's that tends to be somewhat genetic, I guess. That's like us Italians can pass for American ninjas people mm, in a film and in pro wrestling. It's true. There uh, you go, Chase, yeah. Yeah. Either Arabs or or Native Americans. So, like, for example, Chief J. Strongbow was mm -hmm. Sechelian. 
uh, Mark Capani ended up playing one of the most infamous characters and in, known to mankind in wrestling, uh, Muhammad Hassan. He was an Italian, by the way. Davari was Persian, so they kind of got almost an Arab. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> There you go. Good job, Vince. That was a great booking, Vince. That's <laughs> get, right. Get, you know, oh, well, let's go down to OVW. Who do we got there? Oh, he kind of looks like an Arab. He kind of looks like one of those guys on TV. <laughs> like, you can imagine. You know, speaking of, <laughs> Peter Thiel is kind of the Vince McMahon of the dissident. He right. is. He is he kind is. of the assembler yeah. of these networks. So Yeah. And whenever um, someone gets viciously canceled in um, tell, like in, in spaces on Twitter, that is directed by Peter Thiel. He gives us a message to say, this person is fire. <laughs> That's right. It's the cave. Yeah. yeah, the plot lines there. It's all orchestrated. So <laughs> you're not safe in the yeah. Twitter space. Yeah, that's why a lot of people left for Telegram because they uh, they went into business for themselves. They didn't, as, a, as they said about Goldberg, they didn't follow the script, you know? <laughs> that's right. Oh, God. But, uh, so let's let's get into this though. Um, how did you like? I guess an introductory question would be. Um, I was I was listening to the uh, stream you did with your father, and oh. you you talked about um, that was a pretty nice wholesome chungus content. I like that. Um, Thank you. But there, I was curious uh, your sort of um, how you started off being a metalhead. I mean, we all have our journey towards it. I mean, nowadays. The way that the metal, maybe we could get into the way the metal scene is nowadays, how yep. terrible it is. But um, it almost makes me, I, I think it was Adam Jones that said this from Tool. He's like, you know, they call us a metal band. I want to take a shower uh, whenever <laughs> they say that term metal. Um, but how did you, were you always sort of like just by hang, by virtue of hanging around your father, were you always like, listening to Kino and Nectar uh, tunes. <laughs> well, so. it was kind of a, it was kind of a long journey because I think he normalized it definitely. Um, mm. It was more so coming from like, I don't know. I sort of had a weird arc because I guess technically I started with the classic rock and then got into like the new metal, like three days oh, yeah. and slipknot. But like a lot of zoomers, we, I wasn't listening to the full album. So I was, I was still yeah. in that normie mindset of like, I like this snippet of this song and that's why I got mm. the album. But uh, eventually it was through uh, Ozzy Osbourne that I really started to cr try to create a lineage. It's like, okay, well, if this goes all the way back to 1970. How did this uh, progress throughout the decades? Mm. And so mm -hmm. after I started the blog, that's when I was trying to like make sense of it as like a kind of like an archaeologist would. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I, I think that, well, I, I guess the the albums and the bands that we're going to talk about today, I think we said, um, obviously, Roots by Sepultura, uh, which I think maybe we could do, I, I think we could do first because Roots gets into a lot of the other genres that we're talking about, whether we're talking about the later Cavaldietta works with Soulfly, I mean, particularly Prophecies, in my opinion, one of their most important albums. Uh, but even before that, with Cynic's, um, focus uh maybe we could get a little bit into like pestilence and atheist and those bands but let's start off with um with roots because i think in terms of genealogy i was arguing about this with matthew in style talks about how um really when you talk about the development of new metal then later core really what influenced metal for the next two decades up until the 2010s i would say that you know fear factory is definitely a name that comes in there sepultura is definitely a name uh, I mean, the fact that half of the guys that formed the sort of new wave of American heavy metal 
and new metal was featured on were featured on roots practically i mean jonathan davis mike Patton, um fred durst fred durst yep fred durst um i believe some production thing was going on there with other people that would be influential in the sort of development of new metal and core and so but yeah let's well we'll get into focus because focus particularly a very special album to my heart but i think uh, let's start off with roots and let's set the stage so Roots comes about in 96, recently acquired Andres Kisar as the main guitarist and sort of the arranger of the band. And of course, we all know the history of Sepultura uh, having a falling out with Max the Cavalier brothers. I mean, Igor stays on as the drummer much longer up until Dante 13. Um, I believe it was over personal issues like um, Max married their manager, Gloria, so forth. You know, so add a little bit of an Oko, Yoko Ono moment. Um, so, but Roots becomes this hugely influential band uh, album because it influences not only the development of metal afterwards, because metal very much was still in sort of life support. I mean, except for Pantera and the bigger ones in the early '90s. I mean, it was it was abysmal in terms of mainstream popularity, not in terms of creativity, as we will get into. But in terms of mainstream popularity, um, these like hipsters from Seattle had taken over, and the 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 sort of did you did you watch the Woodstock '99 documentary by the way? Yes, I did. Okay, give me your thoughts because this leads into it. Give me your thoughts. Give me your thoughts. Sure. Well, obviously, there's it was a like, total hip piece, right? It was a total. Right. It's an obnoxious, yeah. politically driven one, so that's too bad. Yeah. But in a way, that that whole event kind of shows you the the state of the American psyche and the music industry at that time, just kind of oh, throwing perfect. it all together. So. No, elaborate on that. No, go, go, go. Because I have my own thoughts, but you do it. Oh, that's amazing. That's an amazing point. It, it's true. Sure. Because it's true. So yeah, go ahead. here's the yeah. thing. Here's, here is the, the take that the, uh, this is why you need revisionism in the music industry, because they were not <laughs> Oh, God. Moby, yes. Moby will not tell you this. He won't do it. <laughs> But I will. So the thing is... Because he was hiding in his trailer during Woodstock 99 the whole that's time. Right. That's why. That's right. Yeah. Total shill. Yeah. Total subversive character. But the thing is... <laughs> anyway, an early life check on that one. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll verify. We'll verify. But the thing is, like, Woodstock 99 is Woodstock 69. It's really the yes. same thing. And so I think a lot of people have this romantic view of the original one. Like everybody was in love with this hippie folk rock mixed with all these other rock adjacent genres. And the, the truth is like, it really felt forced. It really felt like a CIA op. The fact that Woodstock was supposed to be this like big cultural moment. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's the thing. And so when people look at Woodstock 99 and go, oh my gosh, how could this have happened? Again, it's it's kind of this Gen X impulse of let's just force this cultural pivotal moment to happen. And I just think it's all wrong. And that's that's why it kind of all these different demographics, all these different genres that really don't really mesh well it, on the same festival stage. It just doesn't really work. And so yeah. it, it's not really surprising to see it kind of looked back on as this, you know, bad thing. Disaster. So. Well, and, you know, people I mean, got hurt and they rioted and it was a huge disaster economically. But uh, no, Woodstock 99, I think, though, in terms of what you said, like the American psyche, I think what really hit the nail on the head was it was the last time that the largely white chud in North America was fully intact. 
before they were devastated by going off to Iraq and Afghanistan, before they were devastated by the financial crisis and then the nascent opioid crisis. It was the last time that culture and like MTV generation would really pay attention to the young white male, in my opinion. And there was this one music critic that, of course, because of course, remember Woodstock 99, according to this documentary, led to Gamergate, remember? And Gamergate led to Trump. So Woodstock 99, you know, and they had the picture of Fred Durst shaking Trump's hand. Woodstock 99 (laughs) led to Trump, okay? Fred Durst led directly to Trump, the same energy. That's why he has the red hat. The red hat is symbolic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He was intuiting the red hat, exactly. Um, The one music critic in it, I believe my good friend Adam Lair knows this guy too. But this guy uh, called Adam Larry a fascist. Uh, another pitchfork hack uh, oh, s- said that, uh, oh, what happened to all those young white males? They went online. Like, it was the last time they could actually go together in public and <laughs> celebrate their own culture, right? You can't have that anymore. Now we have to go online. Now we have to have anime and griper abbies and ratio um ratio journalists before we get banned on our 50th account again so um yeah uh but but what was interesting is that the the contrast i think between these music critics from pitchfork they said that coachella which started at the same year in california that it was like the early 90s was hip and progressive and lgbt friendly and then the late 90s these chuds had their metal, their new metal, and the inner city America took hold again. And all of a sudden it became this like crass market exploitation. Because of course, like Coachella is never about crass market exploitation. It was wholesome chungus. They gave water out to people. It was it was amazing. It was it was angelic, right? It was Nirvana singing about um it was Nirvana at Rock for Choice. Put it there you go. That was <laughs> Well, the thing is, is like grunge ended. It's like people don't yeah. remember the fact that it really only had about like a two to four year run consistently. And then all the things that people attribute to the Seattle legacy is really post grunge. That might be a little obnoxious to kind of separate the two, but yeah. it really was. I mean, it ended because, you know, and I think even Thomas alluded to this in one episode, you know, there was really nothing like national about Seattle itself. There was nothing that really yeah. binded the whole nation to like this one specific scene that was probably supposed to stay local anyway and so when you turn it in yeah it was actually yeah yeah and and so like to make it this like to make it define a whole decade it's like well it didn't even survive the decade you know new metal outlasted grunge so how does that make any sense (laughs) no but when it uh, but that's the thing and this is what will piss off everybody nirvana does not speak to the public consciousness the way that Pantera did and the way that Limp Bizkit. I know this is, I know this is going to be nuclear take, but Fred Durst is more of an American figure than Kurt Cobain will ever be. Okay. Like that's just a fact. That's just a fact. Isn't that what lefties try to say anyways? Like, yeah, Kid Rock, people like that, you know, these people from the South and these caricatures that they depict isn't like they even say, that those people define like the American identity as opposed to yeah. like, this progress. Like, you know, Kurt was like a progressive sort of, uh, I don't know, just kind of an obnoxious type. Like, proto editor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> These guys are on the margins. So like, how would he be the, uh, the, the Uber mensch of America? <laughs> he doesn't even fit the profile. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. He fits. He, I think he fits like a very particular denuded type of American male that really you, you know, you'd find out like your average, like March for like women's March or whatever, but right. like, yeah, Limp Bizkit, Fred Durst and Kid Rock. And like, I think new metal tapped into a, a huge heart of the American psyche and we can bash it. I know Scocker is probably going nuts. So if he's listening, <laughs> but um, we're going to bring we'll, him, we're going to bring him over. We're going to bring him on. Uh, we're going to talk about new metal, but don't worry. We'll get into other albums that are not as new metal. But I True. think that the sort of the setting up at the very end, the hippies. And of course the way that they dragged DMX was disgusting right after he died wow. too. Yeah. Because that act, when he sung my gamer word in front of right. like the mostly white audience, that was seen for years as a as an act of racial solidarity. That it was cool that now black culture can be ascendant in a way that wasn't forced. Unfortunately, I would say the way it is nowadays. Like DMX, I think represented a genuine and organic interest from mostly young white Americans towards black inner city culture. I feel. I mean, yes, of course, you could say that. Even people within the industry, they would say that. Uh, like people who are more woke, right? Like KRS-One or whatever, they would say that, you know, rap music was basically a psyop in some ways. I mean, gangster rap. But you could say that there was genuine organic expression there, right? I mean, these people actually lived, well, unless, well, there was some studio gangsters, okay, there was. But a sure. lot of them were, <laughs> but, but a lot of them were genuine though. And DMX was definitely genuine. Um, but the way that they besmirched him, and, and there was this one point where this this music critic said, well, can you imagine the few African-American people there with their white friends? And what, can you imagine all of them singing my gamer word and like this gospel call response? And can you, how would they feel? They felt that their white friend would say the gamer. It's like, no, they were not thinking that when they were there. They were not. They were thinking like, oh, my God, DMX is here. I'm here with my friends. Finally, my frat, my white suburban middle class friends can appreciate the same music I do. I think that's what they were thinking. I don't know, Ace, am I crazy for saying this? No, exactly. It's <laughs> That's another example of like revisionism. Like, of course, back then the Overton window was different. And so like, I don't know if you remember that statistic. I, I don't remember if it was verified, but like the idea that more white suburban kids were listening to rap compared to grunge or, or compared to yeah. rap, I mean. And so, like, obviously, it was kind of this, like, unifying genre, or at least in this context, uh, referring to DMX. So I just don't understand how they could totally, like, misrepresent it when, like, that's one of their, like, go-to lines, as in, like, this genre is for everybody. It's not exclusive. Yeah. But it's not for everybody nowadays. That's the thing. It, it's, right, right. It, you know, it's become American culture. But at the same time, we have to feel guilty about it. So it's right, like, right. yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. Academic agent recently, he's gone in a spiel about uh, that one particular uh, Julius Evola essay. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. But um, <laughs> yeah, but but I think you know Woodstock '99. I think was sort of like our. If if you were an older millennial, I think it was groundbreaking. It was something that was monumental, and it's something that could never happen ever again. I mean, maybe the live aid stuff, but not the same vibe. It was if like, if you were old enough to remember, which I mean, I wasn't, I was only like eight years old, but it, it truly was, I think a watershed moment for, 
for the MTV generation. I mean, listen, we all love our Gen Xers, folks. I mean, we bash them a lot. We all love our Gen Xers, folks. Um, but yeah, so I think, so. But but what's interesting is that, okay, let's go back to the early 90s then. Let's go back to the picture of the metal scene. You had a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation that was happening underground, the Florida death metal scene. But along, you had these other figures with them. You had Paul Masvidal and Sean Reinert and Cynic. You had Santiago Dobos, who was like affiliated with them. You had other people, you know, of course, of Agora fame. You have other people that were sort of doing these very interesting things. And like, if you could sort of give us a picture, like what was going on during that grunge time with metal? Like, did people truly think like that was it? It was over. Then like Pantera was the only band that was keeping it afloat or like what was happening? Like what was the nitty gritty in other words? Well, I think you can't really tell the story without like the Black Album, because I think that also yeah. gave metal uh, an identity crisis. It seemed like they were giving the OK, you can water it down a bit. You can make it more commercial, but it was still pretty thrashy. And so you have a lot of albums that are like at least thrash to that point that kind of mesh well with the, the 80s sound. I was just listening to uh, Meshuggah's debut album, which doesn't really sound like uh-huh. anything. Yep. after it and you can hear you know they're they're still doing the metallica sound because it's late 80s early 90s which is still the 80s and so you know you kind of have the the 80s decade continue onward up until the black album but within the underground scene you have bands like watchtower that are yes. really combining jazz fusion with a lot of the more aggressive metal subgenres and so you're getting this like synthesis of bands like death you're getting like yep. Chuck Schuldiner was very much influenced the individual thought pattern and human though that sound is going to go on to define bands like Cynic who are also continuing that legacy. And so that's kind of happening in the underground. And so I don't know if we, we want to say that that's like a, a major identity because it's so you'd have to like be in the know to know about those bands. Right. So. Yes. You had to be like around with Cynic. You had to be around university record shops. That's that's what the big thing was um when they were put on the tour package with slayer that was a monumental mistake that's what made them quit because you'd have like slayer fans they would like they would they would cynic was opening up for slayer of course they didn't have like an tolerance or acceptance so you know they'd be throwing stuff at them they'd be calling them f slayers like what is this this is not metal um which is kind of crazy because slayer and like the big four they become these holdouts from the 80s that I mean, I really like when I was a kid, I really loved those Slayer albums that people considered like new metal, like God hates us all, you know, like those, like, you know, even a Diablos and Musica, like, like, oh, Slayer had to change, man. But like, well, I mean, the average Slayer fan, like, you know how it is. They want the same. They want rain and blood over and over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, they kind of. I mean, all the big four bands technically surrendered to the alternative sound. And so, like you said, they are kind of like carrying over, like they're kind of the old guys from the 80s at that point, even though they've only been around for so many years. It really was time for like a new sound to be given back to the youth, because obviously we can't really rely on the legacy bands to carry it, because, of course, we just get the same old stuff. So I think that's where the jazz sound starts to come into it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. It's it, it almost mirrors what was happening with punk after um Joy Division where everything became hardcore. Um a lot but a lot of great stuff came out of that. Like a lot of, like Slint, um 
you know, the Jesus lizard, like the sort of pig F, F word punk, you know, from the South. Right. Um, but the sludgy stuff. But then what happened was there was this huge identity crisis where what happened to like the soft boy, um, like Fugazi or here in Canada, they were listening to Propagani, which is actually a good band. But okay. what, what happened to them? They, they started listening to shoegaze and like That's this become, this is Chris Ott's thesis, by the way, that this, this is shoegaze. This is that, but in metal, you have like the reintegration of the brutality. Then like right off the bat, it, it only takes like a few years up until cryptopsy where you have Lord Worm, you have inaudible growling. But then you also have this other innovative stuff underneath that's happening in Florida largely. And also play, pockets in Europe, like, um, you know, disembowelment's one example. But so, you know, you have this innovation. But they're also, like you were saying, this identity crisis, which is very fascinating. But even like, um, would you say Megadeth was the last of the big four to sell? Because they did have euthanasia. They did have other albums in the, the mid-90s. I mean, Marty Friedman was still there. But... Well, I mean, maybe that was a bad thing by the the time it came to risk. But would you say that, like, where was... Because people talk about Metallica selling out. They talk about how Slayer sort of went underground. But, like, what was Megadeth doing at this time? Where They, they were still on MTV frequently. It was just that they didn't have, like, the stadium power, I guess, they did. Sure. I, I think they were still being mostly consistent. To me, the one album that, that kind of exposes them besides risk is the one everyone looks at but i mean the world needs a hero i think that oh are, yes that may have like some of their worst songs but it's kind of ironic because like that title is talking about the fact that metal is in this stage and like you know what what is going to be the galvanizer moving forward because all the legacy bands are towing a line pretty much and so he's kind of just posing that question out there, even on the album where you know, he's even suffering from some of it. So it is interesting. Wow. I do think they were the last, they were, they were one of the last to, to hold out. Yeah. And then they came, they came back almost immediately though. That's the thing they, yeah. they did with like, uh, the system has failed. You know, they, it wasn't like it was uh, an era really. I mean, maybe no. briefly. So. Yeah. It was, what was the album after risk when Marty Friedman left? It was, I think, um, that, I think that was the system has failed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Then jump, jump way forward into the 2010s. They released my favorite album, Endgame, the Alex Jones album. <laughs> so, yeah. literally, literally an Alex Jones and, and the interview. Have you seen that interview? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, multiple Dude. times when oh, it used to be on it. YouTube. Yeah, man. I woke up in a black FEMA box. <laughs> Darkness <laughs> was all around me in my coffin. Um, that would I, I could like Dave Mustaine t hats off hats off to being one of the wokest man in metal the 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 man who has inspired a million metal sucks hit pieces you know? that's right no no that's true like even with this newest album people are saying I'm I'm so glad he got away from his xenophobic roots in dystopia because in dystopia. <laughs> He is talking. I mean, you can interpret the lyrics as talking about like immigration and you know, <laughs> America's identity. Yeah. And so he's, I mean, yeah. it's such a political album. And it's just, it's funny that people don't really listen to it that way. It's just, oh, they're just, it's like Super Collider. It's just another album. But I mean, it, yeah, very yeah. explicit lyrics. Yeah. And I think maybe um, if the right audience finds it eventually, then it'll propel into cult-like status. <laughs> like, it could, it could. Yeah, the same way that I would think even euthanasia is the fact that it was sort of neglected by the charts and then it became this like big thing, right? Um, right. So so let's get into it, I guess. Um, I well, well, we'll cover 
focus eventually. But Sepultura's roots, I mean, having half my family in Brazil, uh, Sepultura, I think, like, is the national band in Brazil in a lot of ways, at least in terms of rock and metal. And so Roots really is the culmination of all of their influences. They actually go and they seek out world musicians, very famous, popular musician in Brazil that did a lot of their arrangements. Um, I'm just, I've been reading uh, reviews of Roots actually. So they, they sought out, um, they, they did the music video and they actually had interviews and they did, I think some field recordings with the, uh, a certain tribe in Brazil um, let me see, Brazilian folk music, thrash metal. Um, yeah, Colinos Brown, who did a lot of the arrangements, very, very popular traditional musician in Brazil. Um, the Zavantes tribe is the one that did a lot of their chants, like for example, in Rata Maharas, um, and a lot of like the preludes throughout the, the, the different arrangements. And they bring in a lot of world musicians from Brazil. And of course, the, the famous attitude um music video where they had the gracie family there that was oh that was amazing man um so you have to realize let, to give you some context they were sort of you know mexico Vallada is kind of similar to to my mother actually in that his father was the italian ambassador to brazil and he is ethnically italian uh growing up in minas Gerais, and it was right after the coup that led to the military juntas in brazil and he talks about when they were kids and it was very hard to get music instruments and there was a lot of censorship and so forth. And uh, so Roots, you know, so having that same experience, like I am also ethnically Italian, but my family, my, my mother's side are mostly expats to Brazil. And so Roots becomes this sort of culmination of these different influences, not just with in terms of the global South, in terms of expanding the horizons of people's sort of auditory palette into world music when it comes to metal, because bands had done this before, Sepultura. But also when it comes domestically to bringing these new metal musicians who are just getting off the ground at this point into the into this, you know, at that time Sepultura was still this like considered this hugely authentic thrash band, and you know, do, doing a lot of work at Morris Sound, you know, famously almost going poor to move to Florida to like live in Florida at the time to work with uh, Scott Burns. And so you have this like, really, I think to me, you know, especially here in Canada, we had, you know, bands like Tea Party, you know, it really was, I think you could say the only sort of that little time period in the 1990s where multiculturalism was sort of like a positive thing. It sort of gave us some sort of like peace of mind. Well, unless you lived in Eastern Europe, then it was a very bad thing. Unless you lived in Africa, then it was a very bad thing. But, you know, in terms of like North America and the West in general, it seems that like this was the only time that like, you know, post Cold War liberalism had won. And now we can enjoy other people's cultures until we realize the problem with that. But, you know, like for the time being in the 1990s, it was very much like the new agey thing had been a, was upon us once more the way it was in the seventies. And it was, it was an exciting time. And if you listen to roots, I mean, it's, it's very, very close album to my heart, but even just the, the fact that they were willing to take those risks being like this hugely authentic thrash band. Um, so if, I mean, what was your impression? When was the first time that you listened to roots? Like what was your experience of it? 
Yeah, that might have been back in the the heyday of YouTube. I think that was like the backdrop background music for like some animation, some stick figure fight or something along those <laughs> Yeah, just stick death. New newgrounds.com or something because that's that was kind of like uh it was kind of like how Bam Margera kind of introduced me to all this like skater music and so that was part of the oh, yeah. diet is this very, you know, aggressive Brazilian band. But uh you know, at that time I and maybe this speaks to how some older people don't get it, but like when I was a, a child, that that all kind of bled together. All of the uh, the new metal to me was the natural progression of heavy metal, and so to hear a song like the Ratamatata, it just didn't seem like that was a big jump to me. It was kind of like an interesting thing that it was part mm -hmm. of the album, but like uh, what what is that one song? Uh, what, what's like the crossover song on that album? Isn't it a undercut? Yeah, undercut. A, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. a two minute song. And so it's like, oh, okay, here's, you know, this, this is still simple to her. It's still doing the same, the same thing, but it's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like the black album, how you can kind of see the weak spots. It's already introducing this new like sub genre within the genre. So yeah. I, I, I didn't really see it for what it was at the time, but looking back, they did kind of, you know, slowly, but surely, you know, expose what, what the industry was going to turn into with that album. Yeah, Born Stubborn is another one. Um, I know what's really interesting is that as an album, it, this is where people weren't aware, I think, of the music palette of the Global South. For example, their one acoustic song on it became hugely popular in Eastern Europe. Yasko was a very one. And of course, in Brazil, it becomes very popular. Um, and a lot of covers, you can find like Polish language covers of Yasko. And so I, I think that what was interesting is that now that metal had this awareness of world music, then the sort of auditory landscape transitioned. I wouldn't say fully into a sort of, what would you say post-Western vibe, but it certainly becomes something of that nature. It becomes something of like, no longer is like metal, like, you know, music for white kids anymore. Like it kind of was, but it kind of wasn't. Now it's like, like metal becomes this global thing, you know, I mean now, but, but this one, it still had like a, a sort of like a masculine and a solar vibe, but it, it wasn't like the total like redditification of metal that we see nowadays where it's like, it's like this, you would just picture the soy Jack meme of like, you know, the guy where he's pointing his t-shirts, like I heart metal, like someone, <laughs> someone on Buru soy has to make that. I'm pretty sure I've seen that. I love metal. Like, you know, Oh, yeah. Man. Well, like, yeah, like you said, because it's no longer local, it's uh, like the Florida death metal scene. You know, I think it was important that that was local. And then we can sort of let the European guys get a, you know, get a take on it. But yeah, once it becomes this like cosmopolitan thing, then yeah, then you start to lose like, how exactly do you get these specific sounds? And how do you get the specific thing? Because, you know, nowadays, everything seems to be made in a studio, and it's all very synthetic. And so yeah. it's kind of unfortunate that I mean, uh, an album like Roots, you know, as much as people could like it, it really did usher in. It normalized what uh, so, sort of the downfall of the industry because it kind of it, it lowered the bar. Uh, the in what is it? The barrier of entry seemed to be lowered in a mm. way since mm -hmm. it was brought into like everybody's living room, like like the internet, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and this was also, I think, the transitionary period. Like I know, I know that I mentioned this in our Style Talks review of Obsolete. Uh, where Burton C. Bell has this interview where he says that, you know, Fear Factory was one of the few bands that could make a living still, but was just on the cusp of the internet age and like Napster and like peer-to-peer -peer sharing. 
Yeah, which is, I mean, it's ancient nowadays by the standards of what we're living in in 2022. But at the time, this was revolutionary. I mean, the fact that Fear Factory intuited a lot of that, the way I think that Sepultura, and also another way intuited the way the culture. So for people listening this far into the into the talk, uh, the reason I think that we have such a fascination in the metal, and the, I think that, you know, you bring this up with Thomas as well, is that it really, it, as an art form, it really does sort of like track on a sonic level, the trajectory of society in a lot of different ways. And Sorry. yeah, in, in the nineties, especially, I think like, if you look at those two bands, Fear Factory and Sepultura, they were like culturally Sepultura and sort of like, I guess you could say digital techno overlay of society. I mean, those two bands were sort of like light years ahead of saying, okay, this is where culture and this is where our civilization is going. And what's funny, I mean, me and Matthew talked about this, is that at the very end, it wasn't like your typical, you know, like jump cut to the Black Mirror ending, like technology bad in in obsolete. You know, Burton C. Bell, the whole character, uh, Edge Crusher, in, in this sort of song um, story booklet, he realizes the futility of being like sort of bane to the system. And he, it's sort of like a weird, it, it's not like a total like technology bad, Black Mirror, oh wow, technology is displacing us. It's more of like the futility of fighting against that, um, even though it has a lot of like, your sort of like chud, what would you say, chud sci-fi, like, you know, yeah. fighting the techno beast or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. Epic boss battle, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. There's, in fact, one song is about an epic boss battle. Actually. Oh, really? Yo, yeah. Yeah, between Edge Crusher and this like system police thing called the Smasher Devourer. So yeah, it's it's, it's very yeah because Burton C. Bell was being influenced by like Shonens and by like other um, you know RoboCop, you know like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so yeah, so the Roots album though, it is fascinating in that it, it sort of gives you a sort of timepiece. But why do you think it became so influential? Is it just because it gave a leg up? To these new metal bands or do you think that the sound like how would you describe the transition from say uh chaos ad to roots like the, the earlier stuff to like sepultura now and the fact that it is probably the last album with both the cavalletta brothers as well so yeah sure well i just think chaos is just a little more in line like i can i can understand someone buying that who was familiar with the earlier stuff i can see them just thinking this is kind of like how endgame and dystopia and megadeth's catalog latter half you know this could be about yeah. anything. It's the same sound. We're just trying to create different riffs, but it's the same formula with Roots. I think that's one of the first major examples of a band. I think it also has to do with like the connections. I mean, the fact that all of those, like you said, all those people that would go on to define the new metal scene, I think that there was just too much buzz around that specific album with those people involved for it to go nowhere. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was also just, I mean, that really was an album that, I mean, it's like load for Metallica. It's it's just so the identity is so warped, and so mm -hmm. you have to confront it at that point. In chaos, you can say, "Hey, you know, it's slightly different, but everything, you know, everything's still moving." But with uh, Roots, I just feel like it's it's unavoidable the the amount of difference. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, people call it the new metal album for a reason. Um, I would say that. I mean the the sort of the the later stuff with Derek Green. I mean I'm I'm quite a big fan of Dante Thirteen. Um, even the very first one they did Nation. I mean Nation was a very powerful album, but it still it retained 
the new metal thing, but it was sort of doing something different. It was much more aligned with the sort of music sensibilities of metal fans you would find in Brazil in the global South. Uh-huh. It very much had sort of rhythmic quality to it that I think in North America, we did sort of gone beyond, not gone beyond, but we sort of have a different, like um, we don't have, it seems that like protest music died in the 1990s with like rage against the machines until nowadays. I mean, nowadays you have a lot of soy Jackington type of stuff. Yeah. Protest. You know, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, here I know, listen, as a Canadian, as someone from Southern Ontario, I'm going to get massive heat for this, but I cannot stand protest the hero. I never liked them growing up. I know they had the Trump album recently. I heard this. They had the Trump Trump album. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. There are a bunch of libs from fucking Burlington. So, you know. Oh, man. Oh, no. Oh, my Canadian. All my Canadian bros. No. Um, But, but, yeah. So, do you think that, is it just that in North America, we have a different sensibility towards, like, protest music? I mean, I know it sort of came back in the Trump era. And, like, you know, Rage Against the Machines touring again. And, but but what happened to protest music? Was, did it die in the early 90s or was it like still there? Yeah. I think, honestly, maybe this is just <laughs> speculation. I think like the American psyche was like in submission to the Patriot Act. And so I don't yeah. think for that long stretch during the Iraq and Afghanistan war, I mean, I think people were supporting it. Not because they had to be, I mean, yeah, they were psyoped into it, but like they believed it. They believed that it was yeah. a just cause. And so- you know, it's one of those things where like, does every individual band have to be, you know, blue pilled on it? Well, they don't have to because they naturally, that's just the education they were brought up with. And yeah. so I think about that famous uh, Britney Spears Tucker interview on CNN where she said, oh. we should, we should support President Bush because he's. Our president. <laughs> oh my God. Which yeah. is very. Which is kind of based, you know. It's which yeah, is kind of, of, relatively. I mean, Bush is not based nowadays, but like no, no, no. back in the day, it was the equivalent to being based. Yeah, right. Yeah, it would be like if Britney Spears. Wait, actually, did Britney Spears support Trump? Did he? I think I it's know. ambiguous. I, I know. I think yeah. Paris Hilton uh, voted for Trump, but uh, I'm oh, not sure. That's we need amazing. the '90s. We need the '90s Hollywood uh, trash TV. You know, <laughs> we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to get yeah exactly. We need the uh, we need the Paris Hilton documentary by Amanda Millis done right now. That's right. That's right. Yeah. For by uh, what is it, Alex Lee Moyer? We need. We yeah, need we need exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then like basically, Paris Hilton would try to do what Tila Tequila did, but do it right. She won't. There you go. Won't be like a total <laughs> wig nap, but like she'll do it right. She'll do like the dissident right circle. She'll get published in like. Um, <laughs> like, like she, she'll be a bit more edgier than the Barry Weiss containment zone. So maybe she'll publish it on her, oh. but no, she'll publish it in the American mind. Uh, Paris. Hill in the book. Yeah. True. Yeah. Well, we need to make this happen. And Alex Lee Moyer would do the documentary. It'll be amazing. But, um, great. well, I, I think like protest music and metal came back. I would say after the huge troop buildup, I mean, certainly you had system of a down that was right. like, like, you know, it's funny. I do a lot of, I got a lot of traction out of those Serge Tankian memes where it's like, because the, the, the I, where I took the song Theta Waves, but he was talking about like slonking raw eggs and like carrots. <laughs> like, he's like, you know, <laughs> but so, like it did come back, I would feel like, especially System of a Down, like, I guess because of another yeah. band deeply influenced by folk music and world music because of their history in, I mean, Serge 
Serge, you know, as an Armenian growing up in Lebanon, um, they sort of, the, even like I remember the the one interview with Rick Rubin saying like, I knew what they were doing because of course, Rick, Rick Rubin growing up as a member of the tribe, he, he knew what that type of Eastern folk music was like. And he said that, you know, you could tell what they were doing with like the, like rhythmically. And the fact that in the first few albums, Serge himself had such an acrobatic vocal ability, you know, in, in songs like Streamline or even Theta Waves, um, songs like No, uh, like even like the more popular ones like Ariel's, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't want, I didn't think I was going to bring up System of a Down, but like, are you, are you System of a Down pilled or what is your, what is your opinions, Ace? Like, what, what is your general? I, I honestly, I kind of put them in the same category as Rage against the Machine. I don't know if that's being a little too harsh, but. I, I think musically, System of a Down is definitely, a, you know, the, probably the thinking man's Rage Against the Machine, the thinking man's yeah. new middle. And so yeah. I, I, you know, I always liked Ariel's and I, I always, I never totally wrote them off. But uh, yeah, they're probably going in the same uh, lineage, probably going back to like Bob Dylan, how an American hippie culture, yeah. protest mm -hmm. music and folk rock seem to go hand in hand with yeah. a lot of the... Uh, counterculture space and so he's it does kind of line up with what, what would be the the social justice cause in the 21st century it would be uh you know the armenia stuff and the uh you know the anti-war anthems yeah would definitely yeah sync up. and hopefully you know it's funny i wonder if serg because of what's happening in armenia i wonder if he'll come out uh in support of this well it's not it's no longer known as a special military operation mm -hmm. but he'll start posting z's and he'll start yeah. talking about based based poot, and he'll like because they have to support Armenia. So maybe we'll get a new. Uh, he'll start anti-Turk posting on Twitter. Maybe okay. that'll happen. You know, so maybe the the whole um, the, we'll get a new system of a down album out of this. And That's true. listen, I don't I don't mean to belittle what's happening because I think what's generally happening is a tragedy. Though mm -hmm. the fact that. The West is cynically exploiting the situation in Armenia to open up a caucus front. But like, okay, well, pol current politics aside, current politics aside, let's let's bracket that. For <laughs> but, <laughs> I know I, it's so terrible. Even just thinking of like, oh man, this is terrible. How can we get a new system out of it? Like, it's it's terrible. Um, but no, but yeah, yeah, System of Down, I think, sort of brings that tradition back to life that had been in the American psyche. But I think that, I mean, System was such a huge, huge band in terms of metal. It was such a huge band at that time. And I remember it. I was a kid then, but like I was an older kid. And I remember when BYOB was everywhere and like normies, normies, like my, my cousin's like old, my friend's older cousin was into it. Like, it's like, whoa, like it's, it's incredible. But I think that, you know, um, protest music was given new life. The, the sort of later declining years of Bush. And of course that all went away under Obama. That all went away. That all went away. Yeah. Now that was something obviously, obviously, but, um, but it, yeah. So final thoughts on roots though. Like, do you, do you think that as we go on, as we explore these other albums, you're saying that I, I think you have more of a negative take on it. So you're saying that it was sort of the decline of metal as being the specifically, um, I know this is going to sound totally LARPy, this like European Faustian spirit thing that it was for us. Like you're saying that it became part of like the 
wholesome chungus we are the world toto africa sort of deal <laughs> like <laughs> it, it is it is the start of that but also the way to avoid that from happening in like an alternative universe is don't make that the defining album you know don't make grunge the defining genre that stuff those albums are supposed to exist in some capacity but it's supposed to be local but when you make it you know the face of the the whole genre then you're you're telling all these other bands metallica you got to Dude, they're they're stealing your gig. You gotta you gotta show them what you can do. And then all the other bands are like, oh, okay, so this is what metal is now. So we don't have to, you know, do the crossover thing. We don't have to do thrash. Let's just yeah. listen to, you know, let's listen to African music from places I can't pronounce, and and that'll be the <laughs> and that's metal. So, yeah, yeah. The, we have to unplug now. We have to unplug. That's um, right. Yeah, that's what D Snyder said. It's too bad D Snyder's gone psycho though. Like I know, the, man. Dude, yeah, it's, so, it's terrible. It's so tragic. The W bands. Yeah, no, he he was well read. <laughs> he was well read on uh on what was happening, but yeah, man. yeah. Um, that interview was great. Like the sort of decline of metal. Like um, you know, Ronnie James Dio. Like it was right before he died too. Um, it's like you know, like that's not metal. Like that's not the stuff I grew up with. Like you know, that's. <laughs> It's like, uh, yeah, you had to have that single and the fact that like MTV, uh, like the D Snyder, what did he say? He's like MTV hurt, but MTV helped, but then it hurt. Like, it's <laughs> like, it would just, it had this, the burnout cycle, the burnout cycle. And, and maybe we could talk about how metal is different nowadays. Like, right. I mean, I don't follow the current news. I mean, I'm sort of disheartened by it. I mean, the metal, the metal journalists really destroyed everything, but right. um, we'll get into that. So. Let's go to the early 90s, though. An album that's super, super close to me in my heart. Um, Cynics Focus. Let's lay the groundwork. So this comes out of them touring Sean Reiner as the drummer and Paul Masvidal, the sort of main guitarist and, and lyricist and visionary of Cynic. Um, unfortunately, Sean Reiner has passed away recently. So RIP. Um, but they were touring with Death for Human Chuck Schuldiner wanted to keep them on, uh, but then they wanted to do their own thing. And of course, Chuck Schuldiner then came out with the legendary sort of lineup of uh, Gene Hoagland and uh, Steve DiGiorgio, who was on Human. But then, of course, Hoagland came about and um, I forget the guitarist name. Oh, what was his name? Shannon. Uh, oh. the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was a good one, though. He, he was good. Um, so uh, a little known story is that they were set to record at Morris Sound because they were touring in Europe, but they actually got stuck in Europe for a few months because Hurricane Irene had devastated Florida and like totally flooded Morris Sound and like their equipment got destroyed. And so they said that that was actually a blessing in disguise because it got them to reformulate what they were doing from the demos in Europe. And so then later on, they went to Morris Sound and, um, you know, laid down. I would think one of the most iconic sessions in sort of that era, but uh, what was your thoughts initially on, on focus? And then maybe we could go through a little bit of the lyrical content because I do think that it's important. Yeah. Sure. Well, well, sound wise, I think it was the natural progression from what I, the band I mentioned earlier, watchtower. It's just really embracing sort of unconventional genres you wouldn't think would mesh with metal. But then again, like Megadeth was doing jazzy stuff in their yeah. early period. Chromatic so, skills. Think, yeah. Right. And so I think kind of bringing that stuff to the forefront, kind of normalizing it in the way that Sepultura was trying to normalize, you know, their local culture, we should have embraced 
of course, academic Asian would disagree, but we Americans <laughs> should embrace the jazz element in heavy metal. Because it is, it is yeah. Americana. It's not that Italian Sinatra nonsense. Oh, no. I'm stopping the recording it. right now. I'm stopping. <laughs> you were banned from content marketing. <laughs> no. That's no I, yeah, I understand. Like, as much as I love Sinatra, as much it's it's very close to my my one my one aunt's heart, I understand that Sinatra is an Ellis Islander, an infiltrator into the American sonic psyche. I understand uh, the sonic unconscious of America. So I will agree with you, even though I'm a big Sinatra fan. But yeah, but, but for people who don't know, what is your general critique of Sinatra? You were going onto this on the stream, but you say that Sinatra is a foreigner. He's an Ellis Islander. It's an alien music genre to America. Defend yourself, right? Really quick. Of course, of course. No, this yeah. is, you're not going to hear this anywhere because it's been blacklisted, oh okay? <laughs> he who shall not be named has to be named, named on the content-minded corner. Because the thing oh, is, man. Sinatra represents a certain, like, version of jazz that can't go anywhere. It can't exist outside of the 20th century. And so yes. when you make that, when you try to describe the Rat Pack in these, like, religious terms, it keeps metal in a very, or excuse me, it keeps music in a very specific category where it can't grow naturally. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of like this boomer impulse of like, that's why metal is where it is today mm -hmm. in classic rock. It's like, we only want to pay tribute to these people that, you know, got to this level of fame. And that's not what music yeah. is supposed to be. It's supposed to be for the youth. And so to, uh, to kind of, I, this kind of idolatry with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, it just kind of keeps metal and jazz and all the stuff that the boomers like you know, it, it makes it so young people can't touch it. And so that's why people like Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis had to bust open the doors and, uh, you know, kind of uh, synthesize all this music and combine it with blues and uh, gospel and all this other stuff, because that's how music grows. That's why jazz has yeah. to be part of cynic and so on. Yeah, but that's evil and racist what Elvis did, though. That's the problem. It's it's a terrible. That's, that's, according to the new biopic, it's evil and racist. And according to uh, people with pronouns in the bio on Twitter, that one thread that had a hundred thousand likes about Elvis. Um, so you gotta, you gotta send me that. You gotta send me that. I missed it. I, I, I remember it, but it was essentially that, um, Elvis stole bl uh, black music in America and that it was terrible and that he didn't credit anybody. And, uh, that it was like basically like white trash music for the day. It was like uh, really just, just, it was man. right after the movie came out really disgusting. Like I'm not, my mother is a big fan. I'm not, I've never listened to Elvis a lot, but I mean, I could appreciate a great, you know, my mother's a big fan, but um, when it comes to Sinatra, I think that you hit the nail on the head because he's coming out of a very specific tradition that in some ways is foreign to America. And also the fact that he is like received in the template of like boomer iconography, uh, iconography that you can't really, when you listen to Sinatra, you know, it's the 20th century. You know there could never be a LARPer that is like in our era of Sinatra. You can only have the greatest hits. But but what do you think that is? Is just the structure of the music? Is just that the boomers made the Rat Pack into like this huge cultural force, you know, uh, going on, you know, uh, the Dick Cavett show every night. And, you know, it's like, yeah, what what is it? Why is it that the Zoomer radio thing, why can't you grow from that? Like as opposed to Elvis and these other genres. Why can't you grow from uh, Sinatra? Yeah, yeah. Because the thing with that big band format is 
Like, I think Sinatra became famous because back in that early 20th century fame period, you kind of had to be eclectic and you had to be an actor and a musician and kind of this Mm -hmm. uh, casual Mm -hmm. on talk shows. And so the problem with from a Zoomer's point of view is all of that, all of that music was really just one category. It was just jazz or it was just big band. And the thing about Elvis that I think is very, you know, it's universal is the fact that you have to combine at least two genres together. That might be a, you know, technically classical music doesn't really do that, or maybe it does, but you have to combine more than one genre because I think, uh, you know, it's, I think this might be tryhard. Music is Hegelian. And so you have Mm. to have a synthesis Mm. in music. Otherwise it dies. And that's what you see with, uh, that's what you see with metalcore Mm. bands where they take, you know, the caricature of metal and punk and that's, that's all you need, but you got to have more than that. There's got to be an authentic, like investigation into what those genres are. And so I just feel like right, Sinatra, right. He, he just did the one thing. You're supposed to do more. You're supposed to build on top of the, the bedrock. Right, right. So I, just, I would say visual art is the same way. I mean, that, that's why the academic painters couldn't really go anywhere in, in the sort of late 19th century. Um, that's why Impressionism basically bodied them. I mean, they couldn't, they could only go to the, the sort of, the sort of skill and the format of a very, very narrow band of the classicists of the old masters that in essence, they really didn't even totally get anyways. And so the sort of academic painting of Bouguereau and others, they sort of, they didn't even capture the spirit of the old masters the way that I think some later people claim to like, you know, the Vienna secession. Um, But yeah, I was talking about this with Patrick Casey, but yes, I agree. I agree with you as much as I love Sinatra. Um, I, I think that well, what happened to core though, like as a divergent thing, I mean, we'll get to, we'll get to focus, but what happened to core? Why is core dead? Why is metal core dead? Is it, why did they all go to the sort of red state County fair circuit? What happened there? That you is know, hey, listen, I, I love the 2016 album by of mice and men just because it's the new metal album. But okay. you know, I, I know. <laughs> but what enough. happened to them? What happened? Why couldn't core grow? In other words, this this might be controversial. I know some people like in the core um, in the core like concert audience might disagree. It might be, a you know, an upgrade for them personally. But when you made it commercial, you brought in the women into this predominantly male space. And that may have worked a little bit in the emo scene because it was always kind of feminine. Core is supposed to be a boys club. And when you commercialize it and you make it so like your cousin was listening to a system of a down song, it's very charming, but it's also a sign that we're really lowering the the barrier of entry. And so that's where the music starts to get sacrificed a little bit. And I think it, it starts to lose like what metal really is. And so that's, that's where the identity again gets warped with the core audience. I remember one time, I was in first year. Uh, this was, I think, 2011. And in a big lecture hall, I think it was a history class, I looked over and next to me is this white girl with like the the bangs. And I remember she had halitosis. I remember I could smell this. I'm like, oh, God. And then uh, I look over her laptop and her screensaver is a bring me the horizon like concert thing with the logo. And I'm like, 
Wow. Oh no. <laughs> oh, it's, oh no. No, it's over, Metal Bros. It's over. It's over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's over. Um, <laughs> no, but I agree. I mean, I know it's not to bash women. It's just that I think when Core um, appealed to the sort of post emo crowd, to like younger millennials, um, I mean, there was a huge development of that sound. There was bands like Sepultura, there was bands like, you know, Converge. Um, like there was I, a sophisticated sort of earlier core that went into it, you know, Midwestern emo. But then by the time it hit, like, you know, Bring Me the Horizon, Blown on the Dance Floor, um, I guess of Mice and Men, I don't want to bash him because I like them, but like of Mice and Men, um, you know, give me some. Ask Alexandria, ask Alexandria. Yeah. Atreyu, Atreyu. Atreyu, yeah, Atreyu. Talking about environmentalism like that. <laughs> <laughs> we want like, we want to we want to trade you talking about bleeding mascara, violence. Okay, violence and romance clashing. That's that is real. Bleeding mascara. That is such a symbol of the post emo core, like the bleeding the the bleeding mascara. Oh my god. See, yeah, so you get even as Zoomer, you get it. You look to your siblings, us older millennials. Core millennials, you're like, what are you people doing? What are you doing? You know, now you have 40-year-olds, uh, uh, you know, touring, like My Chemical Romance nostalgia tours. What? What is this? What? Listen, if <laughs> I I don't mind the Limp Bizkit nostalgia tours because Fred Durst still has it. You know, he's, That's he's, right. he's graced into his old man status, his creepy old man status. He's graced into it. But you know, singing the Black Parade when you're 40 years old is yeah. kind of like not good. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and of course, what the secret was with Core is that a lot, of, a lot of these teenage girls hanging around with these guys wearing mascara, a lot of bad things happen behind the scenes in those concerts. Okay, not to get into it, but we all know about the Daru. What's the guy's name? Daravan. You know the guy from. Uh, what band was that asking Alexandria? What band was, was that? Oh, it might have been. No, it wasn't asking Alexandria. It was um oh god, you know, but you know what I'm talking about the one that Jesse Slaughter was involved in. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When she was like 15 years old. Um, so <laughs> a lot of bad things was happening uh back then. And then of course you have the later ones where it you know, like Chelsea Grin. And like it sort of became a competition to see like how, I guess what would you call it like, very stripped down brutality, where it's like yeah. all about the blast beats and all about the breakdowns. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know those bands, right? Like I, just, I had a lot of friends who were into this because in my area in Southern Ontario, like core was everywhere. It was like the thing. Like if you were a metalhead, you had to go to Hamilton. You had to go to Toronto. Like not around here. Like in Niagara, it was all core bands. It was all like. Hipster okay. court. Oh, it was terrible, man. Was, <laughs> yeah, because I had friends that had bands, and you know, it was oh man, you go to <laughs> yeah, but without doxing myself, uh, we had this thing around here called uh scene fest. And uh, one time it was pretty cool because one year a lot of these American bands that were touring with Sumerian came down. Uh so I I saw the faceless, I saw a few of those other bands. I think Rings of Saturn came down. Um, yeah, yeah. I actually met Michael Keane twice, Keane Machine. 
And uh, he recognized me. I'll tell you the story. Um, I, I go, I go up to him and he, it was right after their concert and it was in this local festival. And I go up to him like, Oh my God, I'm like, okay, I'm so I'm a big fan. First thing comes out of my mouth after I'm a big fan is I'm also a big fan of David Icke. And I'm a big, I, I love David Icke. I've read children of the matrix. And he sort of looks at me like this fat kid. He's like, he like shakes, he like shakes my really? ass. Like you're a weirdo. And uh, then when I went to Summer Slaughter and and he was on stage prepping his rig, because you know you got to get the right plugins with the Fractal Axe effects, folks. Got to get the right plugins. So <laughs> I go. I was right in the front row. Um, I met the singer from uh, Decrepit Birth. He was an amazing guy, Robinson. He's a great guy. Uh, but then I, I shouted, "I'm like, Keen, Michael Keen, remember me? Remember me?" He's like. He looks over and he's like, oh, God, not you again. <laughs> like, he actually said that. That was amazing. It was amazing. Yo, let's go. And, uh, yeah, it was it was dope. Yeah. Oh, uh, he's not doing so good nowadays. He's got some personal demons. But any, anyways, anyways. Um, yeah. So anyway, six focus. We're finally getting to focus. Focus. So focus was like the album that brought in, I think, a lot of like music wise the jazz fusion the jazz fusion thing um a lot of like the sort of 70s stuff was a huge inspiration whether it was alan holdsworth uh mahavishnu orchestra um the psychopton guitars no guitar note was played the same in in unison it was very very much the sort of point and counterpoint but lyrically though you have a lot of these bands embracing like new age woo. And I thought, you know, using a vocoder to get like an alien sound mixed with growling, like, but the lyrics though, the sort of like the world music, the jazz breakdowns, like to me, when I was younger, when I was a new ager, it was like, Oh my God. Like it was, I'm cooming, I'm cooming. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but what's your impressions of focus when you listen to it? Like what, what's your impressions of this? Well, I like, I, it might be one of those songs towards the end, might be the last one where it literally sounds like a metal, the Metal Slug 3 soundtrack. It's got a very specific, mm. like, 8-bit video game heavy metal riff. And so, to me, like, I, I've gotten used, I've, I've assimilated into, like, the Watchtower sound and a lot of the jazz fusion. So, to me, it's not that yeah. foreign. It's not like, it's not like combining, it's not like a banana ice cream or whatever. It's not this big contrast. But, um... No, I, I like the album. I was a little weirded out by the vocals, though, because I wondered yeah. if that was too much. I wondered if that was crossing over into uh, we're, we're trying a little too hard to make this a different thing. But no, no, yeah. I that, that album was kind of uh, was kind of eye opening. Yeah, yeah. I think because Paul Masvidal said he wasn't confident in his vocal ability at the time. Okay. So he had to like find a way to mask it. But it became like this thing, like it became um, he said, like he had this like very complicated rig between the vocoder and like his actual like sound using a Strandberg guitar. And he said like, he's like, it was him and his music guy. They were touring these, like basically like uh, there's this one famous one from Berkeley that got recorded, but they were touring these college towns and he's like, you know, some nights it would work and some nights it wouldn't. And it's like, we didn't know it was so complicated that it's like, you know, we just pray to God that it worked. Um, but in terms of the lyrics though, like what really gets me is that, uh, let's, let's read, um, uh, well, Vale of Maya, Vale of Maya, the, the, the opening song, the one that everyone knows, 
Imaya's grip solution transforms virility, perceiving the, through a delusive world of duality. Veil of Maya balance every joy with a grief. Dual scales of Maya, earthless, Earth's unending of polarity. Ahamkata, Veil of Maya. And so those who don't know, Veil of Maya is the sort of, well, it's hard to explain because it's not necessarily illusion, but rather it is the veil of perceptibility in Vedanta. It is, you could say it's illusion, but rather it's not so much that it's illusion, like it's an unreality. It's a reality, but it's sort of like, it's like mutual origination in Buddhism. It's like everything is impermanent in a sense. And Ahamkara is the lowest, sorry, excuse me. It's the lowest material self. It is the sort of self that is, I guess you would equate it with the ego. Um, it's been many years since I studied Vedanta in grad school, but but it was like, even though it was like kitschy and new agey, it, it was like, you know, a new age shop in, in Venice Beach. It, to me, it's very meaningful because metal had never crossed into this territory before into like bringing in like spirituality and talking about these things. Like even um, one of my favorite lyrics is from uh, let's see. Oh, we're, oh yeah. I'm but a wave too. Siri cosmic sea. All is within you as in a dream. I'm but a wave too. infinity within that consciousness and ever expanding sphere. Immortality speaks ignite spreading by air of bliss. Like that's like that. Like compare that to uh compare that to um let, let's see uh f worded with the knife by cannibal corpse like, right there, there's definitely a big uh disproportionate <laughs> rate in death metal and, and maybe that's why death metal doesn't really grow after the florida scene is because people don't appreciate you know death metal was good when it was combined with other genres that's something to think about so. that is something to think about but but what do you think why do you think that you had bands like them, Agora came after, um, uh, Pestilence with Spheres, Atheist with Consuming Impulse, um, to an extent Death a little bit. I mean, the lyrics being more introspective rather than being like overtly um, political or religious. Why do you think at this time in the early 90s, metal took on the sort of grander new age vision? Like, was it just because of like the sort of new awareness of globalization or was it that you had like these, you know, like Paul Mazavidal being this like, you know, uh, hippie uh, LGBT person that is, like, you know, like, what what do you think? Like, why did all these bands sort of like become more of this in, in the in the 90s? Well, I, I think American identity is uh, at that time is kind of yearning for something more and sort of kind of. I think a lot of the, the metal bands at that time are really trying to confront that in a lot of these globalization type topics. And so I don't know if they're politically inclined to talk about it from that space, but I think when you see people, you know, diving into jazz or diving into, you know, things that aren't conventionally metal, I just think that's, they see that as the only way for this thing to grow. Otherwise, you know, I think they're looking at the big four and saying they did it. They did the thing. Yeah. They're, they're the legacy. And so what do we do now? It's sort of uh, the balls in their court. And I think that they are, they're not shy to look into more obscure, you know, places to uh, to find some of that identity. And I, I think once once like Cynic came out with that album and it became kind of like this okay thing that was validated, I think that's when you that's when all the other bands start to fall in line. So I don't know if they're all in tune, but I think definitely just you know after the uh, in the '90s when they needed a, an identity, you know, referendum. I, I just think it's it was because they were yearning for just something a little bit more during that climate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But do you think that 
the sort of traditional topics of, of death metal, be it like, you know, um, horror movies, um, you know, uh, mass murders, like things of that nature, um, political persecution, um, there, you know, some of those bands were overtly political in some respects. I know that a lot of them got that from punk, but I mean, of course, Slayer had one of the basis songs known to man, <laughs> angel of death. Um, but do you think that those topics were sort of played out and like taken as not serious at this age? Or, yes, yeah. exactly. I forget. I don't know if it was someone from Slayer or Exodus or it may not have even been either, but I remember somebody said like, if you're after the eighties, if you're a metal band and you're still doing the Satan pentagram thing, like it's over, that's played yeah. out. That's not yeah. evil. Like that's, Sorry, you know, Glenn Benton. I'm very sorry. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. That's that's the thing. And it's like, you know, even if you're an atheist or, or, or somebody like, you know, a character like that, I mean, even you have to understand, you know, this this is like a, a, a fad. This is the, the latest. That was the trend of the 80s. And it just has no context in this in this climate that we're in. So, yeah, I'm glad to kind of see a lot of that stuff retired. Um, unfortunately, like the new wave of traditional heavy metal is kind of bringing that stuff back because it's an 80 sound. But uh, mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff I just see as a crutch. Like metal fans don't need that. And, no. uh, you know, the, the doom metal bands don't even uh, embrace some of that stuff either. So even like some of the darkest stuff doesn't have to approach satanic stuff because uh, it's just yeah. it's not edgy. It's not cool. Yeah, exactly. And I think even like in like I know black metal went through this crisis as well. Um, I'm not too, I'm not too as well versed as Scar Greer is, but I think that they went through, you had the later bands sort of, well, especially bands like Ulver that like, you know, they sort of dropped the, and by the time it went to America, by the time, you know, went to the Carpathians, like it's, it became like this folk identity rather than like we worship Satan and all this crap. Like it was, it embraced an older folk tradition in Europe. Um, and even in North America, uh, like people, a lot of like core black metal people, they despise American black metal, but I think like they were doing very interesting things, you know, in the Cascadians, right. Cascadian black metal. Um, I know like, uh, Re Reza Negristani wrote this academic paper on it, Cascadian black metal. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, I think, so you think that metal was going like in terms of death metal, you're right. Like where could it go? Like, I mean, the sort of the satanic panic was real by the way, hundred percent right. real, hundred percent real. Um, uh, but, but in terms of like pop culture, do you think edginess died with Columbine? You probably feel like that's probably what really did it. Um, yeah, honestly, because I mean, at that point it's like, whatever the caricature is, isn't, isn't really sexy. It's not really fulfilling. It's kind of uh there's that one Schopenhauer essay where he's like, you know, people who want to romanticize death, you're not going to reap the rewards of satisfaction after death. So it's kind of a futile thing to kind of, uh, I mean, obviously people talk about death in general, but like death in terms of like thinking like people who want it, people who would want it in this like very, you know, strange way that doesn't make sense, you know, philosophically. So I just think, yeah, like you said, edginess you know, being negative something is not an identity. Being, you know, going after a boogeyman is, uh, I don't think, fulfilling for any band. And, you know, the band is the one that has to, like, they have to kind of put their money where their mouth is with their albums. And so I'm sure they're the first to uh, get tired of a lot of these identities and say, you know what, we're not going to dump all our energy into this thing that 
we honestly don't know anything of how, and it's not really that cool to begin with. So I think they graduated. Death Metal really graduated into something that yeah. is musical. Yeah, yeah. And I think like a lot of the bands that have come out nowadays, a lot of the gem bands, a lot of the newer progressive metal bands, they they took focus and they were like, this is our album. Like uh, bands like Contortionist. They, like when, 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 uh, you know, when Cynic reformulated in the 20, 2000s, they came out with Trace Denier, really amazing album. I really loved it. But then they came out with that other one. Um, oh, what was it called? Kindly Bent to Free Us. It was kind of not that great. Uh, but then Contortionist came out with Language, and that was the album that Cynic should have made. Um, the one that came out recently after Sean Reynard's death, I think it came out a few months ago. It was a good album. I liked it. It was a good album. And of course, to give you a, a background in terms of visual art, is that um, Robert Venosa, the, the Mish technique painter that learned under um, Ernst Fuchs that brought back the old masters, the Mish technique with oil paint. Uh, he was the one that's affiliated with what they call the visionary art people like Alex mm -hmm. Gray. Um, Robert Venosa, his artwork is donned on every Cynic album. And he actually, um, Sean Reiner and Paul Masvidal actually met Venosa, who did their Cynic album, the, the logo. And they were talking about it. There's this great book called, um, I think it's called Injustice for Art, where it talks about like metal album covers and artwork. And Robert Venosa uh, said that he had this vision of an integral artwork that can combine sound and visuals and, and, uh, and, and lyrics. And I think that was the cynic ideal. And so that's why Venosa's artwork um, so the, the, the actual cover of the Focus album is part of a triptych that Robert Venosa did called Angelic Manifestations. And so that's where you get the, 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 the sort of alien being who is also an angel. So like, this is like total schizo, early internet, Usenet forums, yeah. talking it's about David how Ike. it's, David, it's Ike. David Ike. Yeah. Yeah. The angels in the film, like there was this combination of like ufology with the new agers with um with um the the biblical end times people so you get a thesis that the the, the ufos are actually the nephilim coming to bring about the end of the world so that you know so that like i i love this stuff and then you have that project camelot you know very early on in youtube i think they're still going the woman's still going of course she's based in red pilled talking about how that certain medical thing is going to never mind, never mind. I'm for YouTube, YouTube, of course, YouTube, of course, of course. Yeah. But you know, cynic in a way represents this change in society where you have like schizos finally having an ability to come together mm -hmm. and be like, yes, the an angels and UFOs are the Nephilim <laughs> you know, 2012. Um, and, and, you know, Theravada Buddhism, put that in the mix. Ayahuasca, let's go. Like, it's, you know, and metal music, and metal music, which is the ultimate Thanatos expression, sonically. Um, so, but but we, but you, what you said is really fascinating, Ace. You said about Schopenhauer. And, of course, Nietzsche gets us in, in Schopenhauer um, the sort of, like, overturning of Romanticism and Kierkegaard and, like, the Socratic lament over death and like want, wishing and pining for it. It's sort of like, that's to them. That's like a, a sickness almost. It's like a, a malady, like, uh, 
you know, uh, what what did Junior Soprano say? All this talk of morbidity, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Um, but but would you say that you and Thomas talked about this before we move on to the other albums? But I'm really fascinated. Would you say that the reason metal music is important because does it speak to something within, let's say, European Faustian civilization? Is it that Thanatos property, or does it have this like sort of side of it that does embrace life, that does embrace extreme? Like, how how would you place it like on a more like I guess you'd say theory cell level? Yeah, I think it's immediate like gratification. It's immediate uh, stimulation, and so whereas other bands like to hint at it or have the subtlety version of it, I think with metal it really does speak to like the male. It speaks to the American. And like you said, you know, in the nineties when we could all watch, you know, WWE attitude era and then go to the uh, <laughs> metal concert, it's yeah, like we can yeah. be ourselves. And we, you know, there is no apology tour. There is no having to justify it. It just is, it is authentic representation or authentic, authentic uh, expression rather. And so that is, I think what kind of metal allowed people to do in this kind of, uh, you know, that, that is kind of like the role of man, the, the way to, you know, let out stress in a healthy way, you know, get out the, that violent impulse in a healthy way. It really does kind of have all those things in one genre. And, uh, and so I, I think, I think that's what it does for people. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, when you see people of all types, you see Valley girls, you see God, hopefully you see goth girls more so, but you get yeah. all these different yeah. high school types <laughs> that can that can uh, relate to it even though it's very masculine and it's very uh you would think it'd be like the meatheads genre and it is that that's for uh, agnostic front that's for hate breed but (laughs) yeah yeah you know for a lot of like the philosophers i think they can find a home in it too that's why i got like tyler hamilton who's kind of fascinated by it because it kind of has that classical it has that classical lineage and that's you hear that in ingve malmstein you hear that in vinnie moore the uh oh i forgot the name of that uh that record company on the West coast that does all the, uh, the shredders like S- speed metal symphony. Um, but anyways, anyways, but yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's coffee. what it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, I think that's what it offers to uh, the American audience. It's kind of the ultimate Yo. American genre. Thank you everyone for listening to the content minded podcast. If you wish to support me and to unlock every full and uncensored version of each week's podcast, please go to patreon.com slash productions. You will not only get every full and uncensored version of Content Minded, but you will also get exclusive content, such as my Giner Reviews series, where I analyze and pick apart various interesting and insightful books or essays. Every episode will be uploaded to Anchor, which will upload them to Spotify, as well as my backup channel on Odyssey. Please look out for new content every single week, and please look out for The Digital Archipelago with me and The Prudentialist. Thank you once again to all of my beautiful patrons. Thank you all for keeping the content renaissance alive. As I always say, God bless and goodbye.